Are you ready for the next step? Is it time to pursue your doctorate? Northwind Theological Seminary offers a fully online doctoral program to help you move ahead. This DTM, Doctorate in Theology and Ministry, centers on issues in open and relational theology. World-renowned theologian Thomas J. Ord directs this program. You'd work directly with Dr. Ord to explore open and relational topics that interest you. As a fully online startup institution, Northwind's doctoral program is far less expensive than other programs. Scholarships are also available. As a doctoral student, you set your own pace. You can work around your personal, family, or work schedules, and you'll likely finish the degree in less than three years. The Doctorate in Theology and Ministry is co-sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which Dr. Ord directs. You'll have access to Center's resources and get to know its community of scholars, activists, practitioners, and educators. For more information, see the seminary website or search Open and Relational Theology at Northwind. It's time to pursue your doctoral degree. Reach out to Northwind now. Hey friends, welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. This is your host, Chris Harmon, and today I have the special opportunity to invite someone who I'm very excited to have on the show, someone who has come up in a lot of conversations I've been having recently with, with my friends, with my wife on Facebook, uh, particularly with the coronavirus going on. Um, today on the show, I'd like to welcome the professor for open and relational theology at Northwind Seminary and author of The Uncontrolling Love of God and God Can't, Thomas J. Ord. Thomas, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation, Chris. Oh, me too. Would you mind just sharing some of your faith journey with with the audience? Sure. I could probably talk for hours, but uh, just a few few highlights. I was raised in a little farming town. My mother and father were very involved in the little church that I attended. And so I was involved a lot too. Uh, You know, we went all the time. Uh, My parents were board members. I I like to say I accepted Jesus into my heart many, many times (laughs) as a kid and uh, was involved. The church is really a major part of our family life. Uh, it's, uh, the church was the church of the Nazarene and, um, it really Mm -hmm. shaped the way I thought about God. I would say it it was an evangelical church. Some of the people in it were fundamentalists. Some were not. Um, and I, I took the ideas to heart. I was a pretty aggressive Mm -hmm. evangelist. I joined campus crusade for Christ when I was in college I began studying for the ministry. So, you know, it was uh, church and the life of faith were central and they still are central to me. Um, But I think a Mm -hmm. big turning point for me came near the end of my college career when uh, I started reading books and essays by people uh, who were from other religious traditions, people who are agnostics or atheists. 
And um, these ideas were kind of pulled the rug out from underneath my my reason for believing that there was a God at all. And I remember coming to pick up my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and her getting in the car and me saying to her, you know, I don't believe in God anymore. And um, hmm. I kept at it, though, in terms of thinking through the issues, continuing to work on the questions of faith. And it wasn't too long before I had come to the place where I thought maybe it did make sense that there was a God. Um, two things were kind of key in that. One was the search for meaning I had. I realized that if there wasn't something like an ultimate source for meaning, a ground for meaning, the what many people call God, then um, I, I couldn't talk about mean, the meaning of life or my life having meaning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was... Um, I realized that I had deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and um, that other people ought to be loving, that, that the world would be better if, if everyone loved. And I couldn't make sense of those intuitions if there wasn't something like what most people call God. Hmm. I, I think especially with, with where your theology has, has moved, especially in, into now, where a lot of people, it seems, at least in, in the public sphere, go to to atheism, to not believing in God, especially with some of the problems that, that you tackle and address in your in your writings, in your work, they don't really seem to come back to to a picture of God. A lot don't. I mean, I know some who do, but yeah, I think there are reasons for why a lot don't come back. And, and one of the reasons, and I hope we address some in this conversation, in fact, is that people never get exposed to really good answers to the good questions that they're, they're asking. You know, they're, they're, mm. called, they're, they're asked to not, you know, to have blind faith, to not ask questions, to just accept things. And I think that's a, you know, a bunch of crap. <laughs> I think you ought to uh, yeah. question that's important. So. And that's what's, that's what's so fascinating about people that have gone from a, a certain level of, of agnosticism to being to to coming back into the faith is is it it kind of creates this uh, worldview where it's like I don't really have much to lose. Where especially growing up in an evangelical church, you'll see people who will either not leave the faith because of the the peer pressure to have, as you said, blind faith, or they'll just leave altogether and then come back and feel ashamed and just kind of hold on for dear life for the things that they left behind in the first place. Yeah. I, I see that happen occasionally too. You know, people will come back more rigid than they were before. It, 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 mm-hmm. it strikes me that at least in some cases they seem motivated by this deep desire for certainty to have some kind of ground to stand on. And um, you know, it's that motivation of fear that at least some of the people I know, that seems to be primary. I don't think that's a particularly good motivation myself. So your your theology has obviously kind of shifted into a into a, a direction that is very different from that evangelical strain and, and that clinging on for dear life. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit about as you came back into from I guess agnosticism back into Christianity into a um, 
uh, some of the some of the things that you you rethought through. Excuse me. Yeah, no problem. Well, I mentioned that my search for meaning and these this intuitions about love, um, those were really important to me, and as a consequence, I uh, I graduated from college, went into being a youth pastor for ten years. And uh, early on in that, I had a really, um, we might say, a thin theology. You know, I believed there was a loving God. I thought Jesus is pretty cool, but that was about it. You know, I had no view of the atonement. Well, I mean, I maybe had views, but it wasn't a very well thought out view. (laughs) And, you know, end times, I mean, all that sort of stuff. I was willing to chuck just about everything that I believed except those two things, which I'd come to think were, you know, essential. And so I started kind of building again, uh, trying to make sense of the world with those two kind of fundamental starting points. And that allowed me, I think, uh, the, we might say the boldness to, um, to buck the system, you know, to, to Hmm. say, to say to things that seemed to me, claims for blind faith that that's just doesn't make sense um Hmm. and still today i'm in that place you know some people i'll put ideas on the table Uh, one of them is uh, captured in the title of my recent book god can't i'll put that on the table and people say what you got to be kidding me that's not what christians have believed (laughs) and i say well tough luck they ought to believe it um And then I start looking at tradition. It turns out there are some Christians who believe at least something like what I'm proposing. So I'm, I'm not like totally out in left field, but it, it is uncommon. Uh, I don't think it's unorthodox, but it's uncommon. And so, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not really that afraid of being un- weird in that sense. And so many people would, would resonate with that of, of that you take God and you take Jesus and that's that's really the the foundation for all of it right is the i think especially in in my context and people that I interact with regularly the the one key thing for people some people deconstruct and then walk away as we were talking about before we started recording and and then some people deconstruct and stick in it and it seems like the common denominator with people that have stuck with it is that these people start with kind of, I guess, to use the Christian Christianese term of uh, the the cornerstone of Jesus, to use that as the as the foundation for their deconstruction, reconstruction, and out of that comes kind of a a boldness and a and a willingness to step out into, like you said, not unorthodox but uh, different streams of Christian thought. Yeah. I think there's a lot to that. I mean, Jesus was a radical, you know, he, he said some wild things and, uh, Jesus wasn't afraid to buck the status quo. And so when you're going through a deconstructive kind of process, thinking through your ideas, Jesus is, (laughs) Jesus is not a bad example to be trying to follow. Yeah. And with that, I, I guess this is kind of a, a personal question about God can't, and it, I, I I would assume it, it would, I, I hope it's not a silly question, but so d- would this fall into the category of open theism? Yes. I mean, I call myself an open relational theologian. Uh, I don't want to say that, you know, all open theists are going to agree with what I have to say about things, but um, 
Open theists believe that God experiences time like we do, sequentially, which means that the future is not settled. God hasn't predestined it, predetermined it. Um, and therefore, uh, God can't know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future because the future's not yet happened. It's not yet knowable. And then the relational part is that God is in relationship with us and all creation. God is really affected by what we do. And um, mm -hmm. those two are those two kind of ideas are central for just about every open and relational theologian. But my idea is about saying that God can't control others, can't single-handedly prevent evil. That's something that uh, is not everyone in the camp would agree with. But it, it's it's um, it's something a lot of people agree with that are open and relational theologians. Hmm. Yeah, and, and what was it like coming to that understanding, to that to that worldview, and to that, I guess, theology? Uh, what what was the journey like to to get to some of the conclusions that you've come to now? Well, it surely didn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, I kind of kept chipping away. I, I kept the issues of love central and I kept asking mm -hmm. myself, okay, if I really truly believe that God is a God of love, that I ought to be loving, then how in the world am I supposed to come to some kind of explanation for the good and the bad, the beautiful mm -hmm. and the ugly? Um, and that kind of approach eventually led me to the place of saying, you know, I don't think God is causing evil. I don't even think God is allowing evil as if God could single-handedly stop it. I think God works against evil and can't prevent it single-handedly. And saying hmm. can't, you know, for the first time, the first time I remember thinking that I should say that, it did feel weird. <laughs> I, I, I want to admit, because yeah. um, look, you know, most people have read the Bible. I'm one of them. I've read the Bible and, and thought it couldn't present that kind of picture of God. I now think it fits pretty nicely. But um, early on, I was really, I felt strange even thinking God can't do some things. And, and there are definitely some streams within Christian thought that obviously would, would very much disagree with that. But for you right. personally, what was the, what was the response amongst peers, amongst uh, coworkers and, and people that, that you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis when you started going public with, with, with this theology? Yeah. Um, you know, I suppose some people immediately threw Bible verses at me. Yeah, but Tom, <laughs> if God can't, then what about X? What about Y? You know, what about the Noah's flood? What about parting the Red Sea? What about the resurrection of Jesus? What about, you know, all that. And that's totally hmm. natural, you know. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think that's weird. Um, it took me a while to get to the place where I could come up with a good answer to those good questions, but I think it's totally natural for people to wonder what the implications are of this particular view. But I hmm. tell you, the people who were most positive toward the ideas of in this book, God can't, or the previous more academic one, the uncontrolling love of God, the people who were most positive were the people who have been hurt. People mm. who are survivors, victims, people who've wondered why God allowed 
what happened to them. That's at least they thought God allowed it. Um, yeah. And so I, it makes me feel good to get all the letters that I get uh, from people who read, especially God can't, who say, yeah, this is finally a view of God that makes sense with what happened to me, because otherwise I'd have to think that God just doesn't care. And that's what's so interesting about that idea that that God allows it. But also, if you come from a more conservative background to to say something, not only does God allow it, but he he commands it, he he ordains it and he wills it. It's interesting because at least for me and and, and people that, that I grew up with, it, it brought this feeling of of peace that was so superficial. And it wasn't until I started more so leaning towards open theism and and some of the ideas you've been putting forth that I actually start realized that it wasn't actually peace I was feeling. It was more so just kind of a a, a spiritual numbing, if you will, of of just like, oh well whatever. Like it God's God's sovereign, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think there are there's a, a pretty strong tradition uh, in Christianity. We'll call it Calvinism. Mm-hmm. It's you know not all Calvinists believe this, but just for shorthand, uh, we'll call it Calvinism that says you know God controls does everything. Um, and so, of course, in that view, yeah, people would be saying God sovereignly in control. You know, take the example of the current coronavirus. God, God is causing it. It's a part of God's mysterious good plan and it's hidden to us because of god's hiddenness and all that sort of thing um but a lot of people don't buy that because they don't they they see that it makes god the author of evil at least author of what we think is evil and so more people i know at least they're uncomfortable saying god is causing evil god causes a coronavirus and but they're they're willing to say god allows it Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ideas I've really gone after hard because that also doesn't really provide us ultimate peace. Uh, I don't think you can trust a God who is allowing the horrible things that happen in the world as if God could, you know, single-handedly stop them. Yeah. And and with all that being said, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about, I mean, we could we could go in light of the coronavirus or we could go just in light of, of the nature of human suffering in general and, and some of the letters that you've gotten and and even probably personal stories of both of ours of, of times where we've we've endured some type of suffering. But I'd really like to talk just kind of the the main idea that, that you're putting forth. Obviously we've kind of talked around it, but God and God can't is a very um in your face kind of that this is the idea. But I I'd really love to talk in more nuance about that idea that God can't do some things. Great. Yeah. So here's the basic idea. The idea is that it's God's very nature to be loving. So far, that sounds pretty obvious to some people, but you know, who's going to doubt that God is loving? Almost everybody affirms Hmm. that. Then the step says, God's love is self-giving and others empowering. That still doesn't sound too strange to most people. Mm -hmm. Then if I say God necessarily loves, God must love because it's God's own nature to love and God can't deny himself according to scripture, then all of a sudden people are saying, okay, well, maybe I can buy that. 
Um, I do want to think that love has some freedom to it. So it sounds a little weird to say God must love, but okay, it's God's nature. Maybe I can go with that. And then the next step is kind of the crucial one. If it's God's nature to love, God must love, and this love is self-giving and others empowering, then God can't control others because by definition, this love is giving them, if they're you know complex creatures like you and me and dogs and elephants, mm-hmm. some kind of freedom. If they're less complex, maybe cells and worms and whatever, some kind of agency, even at the smallest levels of reality, the quantum level, we might say, there's indeterminacy and God is providing the capacity uh, to uh, be and to respond even at that level. So the, the, the sort of the shorthand way I say it is this, God loves everyone and everything. So God can't control anyone or anything. I can see why that, that would fly in the face of, uh, of, of certain people that, that obviously we've, we've, we've both rubbed shoulders with in, in certain ways. So obviously there, there are a million different questions that come to mind with that of, so within that of, of God can't influence people. I mean, I'll just go with the flow of the first one that that comes to my mind. What what do you do in, I mean, obviously revelation is kind of a, a tricky book in general, but with with the the beast and the false prophet of it, it, it I don't want to say that God's controlling them, but it kind of seems like He's behind all of it, at least in my own in my own readings. So, what do you do with, with biblical passages that kind of seem like God's pulling the strings, or whether it be Pharaoh or it be um, uh, Babylon or it be uh, wherever? What does that look like? Let me make a really bold and wild claim for you, okay? okay (laughs) i don't think there's a single story or passage in the entire bible that explicitly says god alone brought about some result and creatures had no contribution or cooperation or any kind of causal force the Hmm. vast majority of stories and passages will speak of god and creation Sometimes there's some mm. stories in which it only speaks about creation and other times only about God, but none of them explicitly say God alone brought something about. And that goes from the creation of the universe to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to the resurrection of Jesus to every miracle I know, including the eschatological fulfillment of things. But what we've mm. done, and, and I say we because I used to do this, but uh, even a lot of academics, the majority, I'll bet, of Christian academics do this, they'll come to the Bible with this assumption that God has the kind of power to single-handedly bring about, you know, results. And um, Hmm. even though the Bible doesn't explicitly say that, that'll be their assumption. And they'll read a story uh, in, in which only God is mentioned, and they'll think, well, a only God's mentioned, God must be the only force that brought something about. Um, And yet there's lots of passages in which God or Jesus can't do something because people aren't cooperating. Some of them are really wild, in Hmm. fact. And uh, anyway, so, so that's my bold claim. I don't know of a single passage that explicitly says God alone brought about some event. Hmm. 
Yeah, we we all do kind of, or, or at least, obviously the 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 hermeneutic that that you read with has, has probably changed as, as you've developed yes. this work. But at least I, even with with my own hermeneutic and and other people's hermeneutics, we do really bring into and onto the table of of biblical interpretation this idea of omnipotence that might not necessarily be revealed in the scripture that we're reading, but more so in the lens with which we're reading the scripture. I think it's true. You know, um, obviously a lot of this depends on what we mean by omnipotence. If, if omnipotence hmm. simply means God is the most powerful, well then I affirm omnipotence, but usually omnipotence hmm. means something like God alone can bring about some result or consequence in the world. And that's the view of omnipotence hmm. I, I reject. And that would definitely be my next question of talking about, I mean, with coronavirus and, and with all of these things going on, I, I mean, I I got very tired of seeing all of the um, reformed, uh, consistent Calvinist blog posts, articles, podcasts being circulated around my circles. And so finally I said something and uh, someone said, so do you not believe that God's omnipotent? And I said, I answered them back and I said, well, I guess it just depends on how you define the word. And so I would be interested to hear with this in mind and obviously saying that that you do hold to um, the omnipotence of God. What is the, the definition for that? Like, what does that yeah, look like? Well, actually, the word I like to use is almighty. Um, it doesn't really, you know, hmm. I could word um, use sovereign, omnipotence, whatever. I like the word almighty because it happens to be the one that most English translators use when they talk about God's power in the Bible. You know, the word El Shaddai is usually translated almighty, even though the word really hmm. means something like a breasted one. But anyway... I like the word almighty because I think God is almighty in three senses. First of all, I think God is almighty in the sense that no one, no thing, no creature, nothing is mightier than God. To quote the psalmist, Mm -hmm. God has no equal. Secondly, I think God is almighty in the sense that God exerts might or influence upon every last entity, creature in all universes. So God is omni-influential, you might say, almighty in that sense. And then third, I think God is the source of the power that you and I and everything that exists has. God gives us the ability to exist and to act and you know, in him we move and live and have our being. I I think mm. God is almighty in that sense. But God can be almighty in all three of those senses and yet be incapable of controlling anyone or anything. So when I talk about mm. God and God's power, I'm not talking about a wimpy God. I'm just talking about a God who is inherently uncontrolling. It goes against God's very nature to control anyone or anything. So then with that being said, his power, it, it, it kind of, his power is manifested in his, his self-giving nature. Yes. Yes. And ability to uh, in um, get creatures to cooperate. Hmm. So I sometimes like to say, um, you know, if we compare 
let's say uh, Mother Teresa with, uh, well, I don't know who the current uh, bodybuilding champion is, so I'll just go with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> if, we, if we compare Mother Teresa and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold can lift a whole lot more weight than Mother Teresa can, so he's more powerful. Hmm. But is he really? Mother Teresa has inspired millions of people to do amazing things. She's had more influence on the earth than the kind of influence that Schwarzenegger's had lifting weights. Now, maybe he's not a good example because he was a, you know, a, a, a governor for a while, but you get my point. Yeah. Um, it's not the amount of power one personally can do that really is the most influential. It's the amount of power one can exhibit by getting other people to use their power to cooperate what you're, with what you're up to. That's amazing power. And that's the kind of power I think God has. I think God has direct power in the three senses that I've mentioned. But what we're most amazed is when creation cooperates with this God in powerful ways. Mm. Yeah, that that's really good. Uh, that That's definitely been something that, that I've really seen be discussed and and in so many different different deconstruction circles in regards to what does power really look like and and what does it mean to be all powerful and I think particularly being influenced by your work um, with that conversation and so I I guess I have a, a few more questions before we kind of dive into the practicality of this and and the next one would be what what's up with this coronavirus like what is the what what is yeah. this maybe the way to get up my answer to the coronavirus is to start with what i think are the options or the explanations i'm hearing other people give and why i don't think they make sense <laughs> so you know the john pipers of the world are going to say you know this is god's plan god is punishing us or god is teaching us some kind of lesson god is causing this and uh if the coronavirus is evil, which I think the consequences of the what this coronavirus is doing are evil, then that makes God the author of evil. Now, of course, you know, the question is, how do you know what's evil? And we could go into that if you want to. But just for the sake of this example, let's just, suggest, let's just assume that the coronavirus is causing evil in our world. There's a, another group of people who are not saying God is causing it. But in some mysterious way, God is allowing it because it's serving some greater good. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the whole God allows evil thing just doesn't sit well with me and most people uh, if you start to think about the real implications of that. Yeah, we don't think that people are loving if they fail to prevent evil that they could have prevented. So then what a lot of people will do is once they see that the God causing the coronavirus or allowing the coronavirus leads to all kinds of problems in thinking about God being perfectly loving, they'll kind of either resort to, well, there is no God, or they'll resort to, well, God's not involved. God is, you know, watching us from a distance like Bette Midler's God, or they'll just put in, they'll reach into their back pocket and slap down a big old honking mystery card. And they'll say, well, who are we to know what God's up to? 
you know, we shouldn't even talk about God's causal activity because God's so totally different from us. And this is called negative theology or apophatic theology. Um, so I don't find any of these satisfying. My proposal says this. God loves everyone and everything, so God can't control anyone or anything. God can't stop the coronavirus single-handedly. God's calling upon you and me and all creation to oppose this evil. That fits really nicely with what most of us are hmm. doing right now, which is self-quarantining, <laughs> you know, uh, trying to, to take care of ourselves, not <laughs> spreading it. We're acting as if our our actions really matter. And that fits well with the view that God can't do it without our help. So this view fits the kind of way that we actually function mm -hmm. in the world. But it does create an interesting question that I get asked from time to time. And that is, what does it mean for God to love a coronavirus? And um, I think that's an excellent question. And, and hmm. part of my answer begins with making sure we're clear on what we mean by love. Love doesn't mean like. I mean, God loves a person who tortures another person, but hates the torturing. You know, that old phrase we would say, and I'm sure you've heard it yourself, that God hmm. loves the sinner, but hates the sin kind of a thing. God can love us even though we disobey. So in terms of God loving the coronavirus, God can love the, the virus, but not like what the virus is doing. The second thing that's, I think, interesting is that most people just assume that a virus is inherently evil. <laughs> you know, like, have you ever heard of a good virus? You know, um, the truth is, I was reading an article yesterday that this one, um, this one specialist in viruses was saying that more than 99% of the viruses in the world do good things. They're important for uh, species diversity and all kinds of other stuff. It's this very small percentage of viruses that end up causing widespread mm -hmm. harm. So in my view, God can love a virus and yet not like what that virus is doing. God can think it's doing evil things, just like God can mm -hmm. love you and me, but not like it when we sin. And so um, it's not actually that hard to imagine God loving a coronavirus uh, in this particular way of thinking. It makes me think, and I, I don't, I don't say this to, to downplay any of the suffering that's going on, but when you look at the, the way that creation is responding to the lack of our, of our ability to go out and, and live life as we normally do, and you see the water in the Venice canals turn clear, you see dolphins in the water in Venice, um, you see some of these beaches that are total tourist traps across the the eastern seaboard where the water is always kind of gross and and now it's clean again and and even being from from outside of Los Angeles you see you see less smog pollution in the air it, it, it's kind of this interesting dynamic as as we've been kind of forced to change our our habits and and obviously due to a a, a pretty serious crisis you see the world around us almost begin to improve itself. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because this is an important feature of the way we think about evils in the world. So what some people do is they'll, 
you know, take what you've been talking about and they'll say, oh, well, look at all the good things that are coming out of this. This must be a part of God's plan. <laughs> and then other people will respond to that notion and say, what? A good God wouldn't cause this. There's nothing about the, what's going on that fits into how God is working in the world. And I take a middle position that says this. No, God doesn't want the coronavirus. God doesn't want any evil. But God works with whatever situation we have and tries to squeeze some good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. And part of that squeezing good might just be the kinds of positive impact that you've already mentioned. Hmm. Um, you know, I used to, when I was growing up, my home church, we had testimony nights on Sunday night all the time. And I remember as a kid hearing people stand up and give testimony about, you know, some bad thing that happened in their life. Uh, you know, maybe they lost their job or maybe they had some illness or whatever. And they would say, um, this bad thing happened, but now look at this good thing that's come from it. And then they would say, God, it's part of God's plan giving me the impression that they thought that God is orchestrating the whole thing, including whatever bad happened in the past. And my view is, no, God's not in the business of orchestrating evil, but God doesn't give up when evil occurs. God continues to work and to call us to work alongside God to try to bring something good out of the bad God didn't want to have happen in the first place. Hmm. Yeah. And with that being said, I, I had another question, but you, you Good. very much piqued my, my interest. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so what is evil and what yes. does it mean for God to work all things for good? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me start with the formal definition of what evil is. Any event is genuinely evil. If all things considered, it makes the world worse that the world might have been. Hmm. So that's a very formal one. It's very philosophical, but let me start there so that uh, you can get a sense of where I'm going to go. So given that kind of definition, we don't say whatever is painful is evil because sometimes we know that going through pain is necessary for, you know, something good that occurs, you know, when, when you decide to get a, I don't know, a college degree, you know that it's going to be some pain involved in studying and all that, but you do it because you think you're going to be a better person when you get done with it. That's not a genuine evil. Hmm. But genuine evils are those things that really make our lives or the world overall worse than it might have been had some other possible event occurred instead. Now, you might say to me, uh, okay, that sounds nice, but who knows whether or not some event is going to make the world worse or not? I mean, only someone with a, who's omniscient, who has a perfect overall perspective, could make that kind of call. Hmm. And uh, my response to that would be, yeah, that's true. We're not omniscient, but every single one of us lives our lives as if some things do make the world worse than it might have been. I call this an experiential mm. non-negotiable. That is, even people who deny that things are worse actually live their lives as if they think there are some things, at least, that make the world worse than it might have been. 
fact, yeah. if you go up and punch them in the nose, they're going to think to you, that you didn't have to punch them and that their life is not as good with the pain in their, of their nose. Yeah. So, so anyway, I also think that the Christian tradition presupposes that some events are evil because, you know, the Christian tradition talks about sin and sin, it seems like by definition means something that makes the world worse than it might have been. But anyway, I'm getting into the weeds now. Sorry. <laughs> no, totally fine. Uh, and, and with that being said, with with evil in mind, and and you kind of see this in, in the Joseph story, and, and you see it in Romans of of all things being worked together. So oh, yes. So what does it what does it mean for for in light of evil being something that makes uh, something for us personally or for a individual personally or for the whole world? Uh, worse off than it was if it hadn't happened what what does it mean for things to be worked and and what is god's role in that yeah so yeah you're uh, that famous passage romans was it 628 you know god works together for good let's see no all things work together for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose that's the king james version of it um the NIV says God is working in all things together mm. with those who love him or for those who love him. Um, so in my book, God Can't, I actually look at four different translations of that particular passage. And I note that the people who made those translations, their own theological assumptions play a really big role in, in the word choices they have. And... Um, the idea that God is working in the midst of evil to try to bring good is reflected in the New International Version translation of that passage. Uh, the King James and the R, uh, the uh, not the uh, NASB make it sound kind of like God is causing all the bad. So even the uh, the biblical texts are subject to um, you know theological views of the translators. <laughs> that was a that was a shocker when I found that one out. Let, yeah, let me, me tell too. you one one time. Yeah. yeah, me too. I mean, you're not taught that in Sunday school, are you? <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. And so I I want to be I, I want to be sensitive with, with your time. Um, but I I know that I I thought it was very important to to kind of lay out some of the the groundwork of of this theology because it it, it seems like for a lot of us who who have gone through some kind of deconstruction there has been this this pressure from from people outside of ourselves that you can believe anything within this bubble but don't believe anything outside and and what really <laughs> triggers the deconstruction and I think what brings a lot of fear and sometimes a lot of comfort as well is is at least for especially like for me and and my wife certain things in regards to Calvinism and, and certain uh, eschatological viewpoints were like, I don't want to believe that, but everyone around me, around me believes that. And then I started reading more and, and studying more for myself. I'm like, Oh, I don't have to believe that. Thank God. But yep. so for that reason, I thought it was important to really lay out what it is to, to look at a viewpoint that that doesn't believe that God ordains or even allows evil to happen, but but I I really want to talk to you about practicality of, of this theology of what does this look like Great. day in day out and and there are so many 
stories even just in my own life of of trying to walk with people through people will say in passing oh but god's sovereign or god's got a plan and and everything in me just screams like no like that he he's not behind this like and that's that's beautiful and that's good and and i and then people are like well then what and i i don't have an answer for them Uh, and and so with that i i'd really love to hear what what does this look like in our day-to-day lives well uh there's so many things i could say about that but let me let me come at your question by addressing a, an issue that a lot of people have that's a very practical issue, I think, uh, when they hear this view. They wonder, okay, what does this, if God can't single-handedly prevent evil, if God can't control anyone or anything, then what does this mean for prayer? Because I'm a person who prays. I mean, most Christians I know pray. And here I'm talking about petitionary mm. prayer, not just, you know, prayers like, um, I don't know, uh, committing our lives or uh, asking for guidance or something like that. What about petitionary prayer? What about asking God to actually do something? Uh, can you pray a petitionary prayer if God is inherently uncontrolling? So my response to that is to begin by saying, if you're a Calvinist, um, it's at least hard for me, if, if I was a Calvinist, to believe my petitionary prayers really mattered. Uh, because God's already predestined everything. And God foreknows it all. You know, the future's already determined and settled. So it's not like me asking God to do something different is going to change anything. It's, it's a done deal. Hmm. But most people, they don't have that view. Or if they do, they they compartmentalize briefly when they pray. <laughs> um, and they think that God could single-handedly bring about some result. Let's say we're praying for uh, Aunt Janine's leukemia. Uh, if I pray and ask God to heal Aunt Janine, they think that God could single-handedly bring that healing about. And most people think God is perfectly loving. And most people think God is wise, at least a lot smarter than you and me. So if you think God is wiser than we are, is perfectly loving, can single-handedly do anything God wants to do, then why should you pray? Like God is smarter than you are. And it's not like God's holding out, like God's not very loving. You have to convince God to be loving. God's perfectly loving all the time. Why pray for Aunt Janine's leukemia, thinking that your prayers might make a difference, if the loving God of the universe could single-handedly heal her? Hmm. I mean, we at least I don't want to believe God is sitting on the sidelines saying, Hey, you know, Chris, you've only prayed 17 times and you're going to have to pray 49 before I actually do something. That's not a a loving God, right? Uh, No. Or, you know, God doesn't want us to beg and plead and, you know, say, oh, pretty please. You know, that makes no sense to me. Hmm. But a lot of people, that's what it seems like their view amounts to. The God who could single-handedly fix things doesn't do so unless we really twist his arm or pray hard enough or have enough faith or beg and plead. And that makes no sense. So this is what my view says. First of all, it starts off saying, 
God is really affected by us. God's a relational God. That's part of open relational theology. So that means that anything I do, all my actions have some effect on God. And of course, petitionary prayer is a real action. It secondly says that we live in an interrelated universe. So my actions don't only not only have an effect on God, they have an effect on others, they have an effect on my body, they have an effect on my environment. So combining the idea that our uh, prayers affect God and affect, and affect our universe, others, I think that our petitionary prayers actually open up new avenues for God to act, new opportunities, new possibilities become available to God that might not have been available had we not acted to pray. Now, it doesn't mean that our prayers somehow make it so that God can control. I'm against the controlling God, but it's like our prayers are our new data that God has to work with in the next moment, which means that our prayers really matter, even though God can't somehow control things because we've prayed. So then what is, I'll just use a, a personal example then. Okay. Um, one of the things that, that is going on with, with one of my family members is they have just recently um, discovered that they, they, they very recently met one of their biological parents. Um, and there was a, I don't want to say scandal, mm. but there was a, it, it was, it was hidden from them for a very long time. And about, I want to say a year ish ago, mm. this parent died. And then now very recently, mm. uh, this, this individual found out from the same person that not only was a parent hidden from them, but a sibling was hidden from them. Um, yeah, crazy. That that's actually just a a, wow. <laughs> a development today that that we found out about. Um, and, and one of the things in uh, is uh, I, from from growing up in a, in a in a church culture that that really idolizes that idea of like, oh well, God's got a plan. Like He's sovereign. He's seen every any and everything, and and seeing what that kind of does to your soul over time. Um everything in me just wants to like reach out and be like, no, like that's not how this works. That's not how this has come about. That's not how this has happened. Like this has happened because of other things. And, and obviously we don't have to, to, to counsel through that immediate decision, but how do you counsel someone through a, or how do you counsel yourself through a situation where evil has been done unto you? Um, about five years ago, I went through a very public incident in which I was laid off from my job mm-hmm. as a university professor. Um, it was literally in the national news. Um, mm-hmm. Big deal. I and most people in the university think I was treated unjustly put my family, my friends, my colleagues, myself through lots and lots of turmoil. And I'm still dealing with the trauma of that today as, as is, as are many of my friends. 
one of the things I already kind of had in place in my mind was this view of God, a God who's not causing evil, not even allowing evil. So unlike some people who go through pain and suffering, I don't know if that's how you would characterize mm -hmm. your current event or not, um, but unlike some people who go that and then say, God, why did you do this to me? That, mm. that thought never crossed my mind. I didn't think God was the one who was orchestrating this because I had a view of God in which God is not never the author of evil, not even allowing it. So I never had those thoughts at all. I never thought God was causing it. I never thought that it was somehow part of some plan for God to teach me a lesson. Sometimes people would come up to me and they'd say things like, well, you know, God knows what he's doing here. You know, God's ways are not our ways. We can trust him. And I just want to punch <laughs> him in the nose yeah. when they would say that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. like that's not my view of God. I don't believe God is has got this all some part of a master plan and is just trying to, you know, make me something better in some way. I do think God has used it, has squeezed some good from it. And maybe in your situation, you'll find yourself having more empathy for people in similar situations. Maybe you'll find yourself uh, realizing some valuable relationships you have. I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, your situation well enough to know, but in my situation, I can rejoice in the good that came from that event without having to go back and say, well, mm. it really was good after all. No, I can say that was evil. That was wrong. So it's really been helpful for me in working through mm. the difficulties of my life. I don't think I'll ever fully understand how that certain view of God really affected my spiritual development and growth over the first few years of, of my faith. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is the ideas that you've been taught that you're wrestling with right now and many of them deconstructing, they'll still kind of be lurking around for a while. I'm, I'm sorry to say this, hmm. but at least if your experience is like most people, it's hard to take make a really clean break. It takes a while to heal from those ideas. Hmm. Uh, my own wife, when she was younger, she heard a lot of, uh, you know, second coming, Jesus is coming back and you ought to be ready any moment. And God's, you know, thief in the night kind of eschatology. Hmm. And even today when she doesn't believe any of it, on New Year's Day, actually New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve, she worries that God's going to come back on New Year's Day because mm. that's what she was taught when she was a kid. Yeah, <laughs> it's never quite left her. No, it's it, it in a lot of ways. It, it and I'm, I'm sure for your wife, it, it's it's trauma. It's a it's a yeah. it's a form of trauma that it's it it's going to take years for for many of us to heal from. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. And with that of healing, this is this is this is the last question. Um, where do we come in? What do we do? How do we yeah. interact with this, with evil? How do we interact with the world? It, like if God can't and he's installed us here, what can we do? Yeah. So obviously what can we do is going to vary on the situation. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to speak in some generalities here. Okay. Okay. 
Um, so the God can't view or the uncontrolling love of God view, which is another phrase I use from my position, does not say God is inactive and on the sidelines and doing nothing. It says God is actually acting, but never in a controlling way. And God empowers us, inspires us, calls us. God needs our cooperation and the cooperation of others in order to overcome evil with good. Hmm. So what we do really matters. Not just some sort of messing around. God is pretending like, you know, inviting us to work alongside God. But in reality, God just will get things done single-handedly. No, in my view, what you and I do ultimately makes a difference. Hmm. So again, going back to the coronavirus. Yeah, what we do in this virus situation makes a difference. I think most people realize that, right? Hmm. <laughs> most people act that way. Yeah. One thing I often hear from people who study my views, especially this uncontrolling love view of the God can't, they'll say to me, you know, Tom, this way of thinking actually fits the way I live my life. Hmm. And I think that I take that as a, a big compliment. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that that should be a compliment. And, and it's funny to to hear you say that because even even the most ardent of calvinists will live their life in like god can't do some things like it's up exactly. to them to to do <laughs> to do those things yeah. yep tom where can people find you where can people interact with you well thanks for asking that question i'm i i'm pretty accessible on social media uh you can find my email address if you have a direct question you can find that pretty easily uh, on the web I have my own website, which is my full name, Thomas J. Ord. That's Thomas, then J-A-Y-O-O-R-D.com. Um, yeah, those are good places to begin. But um, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll just stop there. Okay. And, and then are, are you working on anything right now? Any Anything new? I'm always working on something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, one of the things I'm working on, this might be a perfect time to mention it. Um, just today, I finished the audio portion of a new book that's a follow-up to the God Can't book. Okay, It's called God Can't Questions and Answers. And it's uh, chapter after chapter addressing the good questions I get from people, you know, through social media or my lecture events. I do a lot of speaking. Uh, giving answers to those good questions in this particular book. So I suspect that'll be available this summer. It should have a pretty quick turnaround. Awesome. I'll, I'll definitely be looking for that. I, I, I work a job that allows me to listen to stuff all day. So I will, I will definitely be, be one of the, the people grabbing yeah, that as soon as I can. Well, well, if, you know, you mentioned, I can't remember if you said earlier you, you'd uh, read God Can't, but that one actually, and Uncontrolling Love of God, those are also on audiobook. Okay. Uh, the downside, though, is you have to listen to my voice of reading it. But, oh, you know. darn. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. And it, I, I try to end every time that I have with, with encouragement because I think that that's, that is a, a spiritual practice that is very much lacking in, in both interdenominational ecumenical conversation, but also just 
in general in the world. Um, so I just want to thank you as someone who's been impacted by the work that you're doing and, and others like you that have, have given me and, and many others the space to really process through theology that, that has revealed itself and, and unmasked itself as, as ugly and, and toxic and hurtful. And so you, you have given so many people freedom from that and you've given us a voice and power to push back and and say you know what i just don't believe that anymore and here's why and so i i just really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart first for being here because i like i was saying before we started i i was so excited to to get the this booked um but also just for what you're doing thanks so much chris that means a lot to me and you have the gift of encouragement that makes me feel good. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Well, Tom, I'll, I'll let you go and, and have a good night and, and stay safe and healthy. All right. You too. See you, Chris. See ya.